In one sense, it is a special day this morning. It's a real joy and a privilege for me to have so many friends from around the area and further afield here. It's, it warms my heart. It's thrilling to see so many um, familiar faces, friends from down the years. But in another, it's quite a normal Sunday. We are the people of God. We have gathered together. We are praising him. We are hearing from his word. We're looking to encourage one another, to spur one another on in the gospel. We're people remembering again together the gospel of grace because we're very forgetful. We keep losing track of it. And there'll be food afterwards. And we like food at Morgan Road. And so it's a normal Sunday, which means you've got me preaching, which is a bit unusual. But it's because it's a series that I'm doing. It's a series thinking how we think, challenging us in our mindsets. Especially, as you can see from the slide, working through what seem to be, at first glance, paradoxes in the Christian life. That that is the way that what God says about something and the way that perhaps we're taught to think seem counterintuitive, seem wrong. The fact that the, the way down is the way up. For example, why does God say that it's, it's through death to self that we gain life? Or why is true glory actually seen through, through suffering? Or, or freedom is actually in slavery? Or strength in weakness or wisdom in foolishness? They, they seem topsy-turvy and our hearts don't like them. We, we, we pull away from them. It's not how we've been taught to think. We struggle to accept them. And so what we're doing week after week is looking at a passage that picks up a different kind of paradox and we'll see that what it says is true. Helping us to rethink how we think, how we, how we process our mindset in life. And so it's a great chance today, in this focus, to think about leadership. How he defines leadership. Greatness. Although Jesus is, is king meant to be glorified worships, the paradox is he is he's a servant. So leadership. I recently bought a copy of this book. It's quite a famous book. Slightly bizarrely, it was mentioned yesterday at our, um, at our leadership training day. It's called From Good to Great by a guy called Jim Collins. It's from 2001. It's a, it's a bestseller. Slightly unusual book, perhaps, for, for a kind of Christian minister to be reading. But it's fascinating because the team there wanted to, to analyse why certain companies succeeded and why others failed. So they meticulously studied various organisations, which ones made the leap from being good to being great and which ones kind of slid and why. And the author, Jim Collins, identifies two key character qualities. The first one isn't rocket science. And that is that these men and women, these chief executives, were were driven. They were hard-working. They were willing to endure. They put the hours in. They had incredible determination. But the second one was a bit more surprising. He says they were self-effacing. They were modest. They always pointed away from themselves. They were humble. The, the good to great leaders never wanted to become larger-than-life heroes. It's striking, isn't it? 
A sense in which we shouldn't be surprised. I think they're onto something because we'll see in the passage for this morning that humility is key for the Christian leader. If we want to be great, then service is key. But that's a concern. Because I know my heart. I know easily how easily pride can rear its ugly heads. All kinds of situations, attitudes, priorities, how I react to criticism, how I react when I don't get my way. I've listened to this from C.S. Lewis. He's very honest and he talks about his internal battles with pride. He says this, And will you believe it, one out of every three is a thought of self-admiration and when everything else fails, having had its neck broken, up comes the thought, what an admirable fellow I am to have broken their necks. I catch myself posturing before the mirror, so to speak, all day long. I pretend I am carefully thinking out loud what to say to the next pupil, for his good, of course, and then suddenly realise I'm thinking how frightfully clever I'm going to be and how he will admire me. And then when you force yourself to stop it, you admire yourself for doing that. It's like fighting the hydra. There seems to be no end to it, depth under depth of self-love and self-admiration. Do You see, he fights his pride... And then he's proud that he's fought it. So here's the problem. If, according to Jim Collins, humility is key in leadership, but according to C.S. Lewis, is the battle for the leader, then how does that work? How do these verses help us rethink leadership this morning? How are they going to keep us Keep me humble. There's lots in there. Two things, though, for this morning. It's my prayer that we'll see that these verses will keep us humble by giving us both the foundation for the Christian life and the foundation for Christian leadership. Foundation for the Christian life and the foundation for Christian leadership. First point, just zoom in with me on 10 verse 45. Utterly key verse as we look at Mark's Gospel, helping us understand from the lips of Jesus who he thinks he is and why he's come. We're actually a week into our Christianity Explored group, but if this is something that that you think you need to think about, perhaps you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you're, you're not quite sure, or you're just wanting a refresher, then I'm told you can still squeeze in Tuesday at 7.30 at the church hall. There will be food Um, Come along to that if there's something you need to think about. 10 verse 45 though, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So who is Jesus? Why did he come? Well, first question we've got to ask is, who is this, this shady Son of Man character? It's an interesting title, isn't it? If we were familiar with our Old Testaments, we might know that it weaves together different ideas as to who this is. So on the one hand, we might think Prophet Ezekiel. He was described as a son of man. He was an unusual character, spirit-filled prophet. He sees God, he passes on God's message to the people, but he was rejected. He suffered terribly at the hands of God's people. So on the one hand, Ezekiel. On the other, Daniel. Daniel 7. 
Do you remember the Son of Man there? The apocalyptic ruler, the king who is going to come with power and authority, majesty. And Jesus pulls the two together. The implication is, Daniel 7, he has every right to be worshipped and glorified. To have that authority, but he didn't come for that, at least not now. He's come to suffer and to serve like Ezekiel. Do you notice in 1045, he didn't come so that you would serve him? Not primarily. But so that he might serve you. He might give his life as a ransom for many. A little way north of Oxford, just next to Bicester, Upper Hayford, the Army Air Base there, the American Air Base, on the 17th of September 1992, a USF-111 fighter bomber had just come back from a routine training flight. But as they're coming into land, the two pilots, Captain Jerry Lind and Major David Maguire, approach the, approach the runway and there's a complete hydraulics failure. But what do you do? They were instructed by the base to, to eject. But they knew if they did that, then the plane would come ploughing into the village. What do you do? Well, they stayed in the plane. But they just managed to steer over the village. But that meant it was too late for them to eject. Lives in the village were saved, but their lives weren't. They died instead of the many. They stayed in the plane. I'll take it, their actions, just in a small part, give us a little glimpse into what Jesus came to do, what the Son of Man came to do. He gave his life for the sake of others. So far in Mark, if we've been reading through, that the reality of Jesus' death should not surprise us. In chapter 8, in chapter 9, despite his, his kind of growing popularity, despite his ministry blossoming, he, he's baffled his disciples and said, I've come to die. And yet here in 10 he tells us why, at least a glimpse of to why. There's a swap, there's a substitution, there's a a sacrifice going on. And we say, well, why this ransom, 45? It's an interesting word, isn't it? It's a word that paints a picture of someone buying the freedom of a slave. The ransomer comes, vast amounts of money, uh, pays the money to match the value of the one in slavery or, or the debt that the slave might have in order to buy their freedom. And we say, well, I'm not a slave. I don't, need, I don't need that kind of a ransom. What's Jesus talking about? Has he got it wrong? I don't think he has. The story of the Bible is that we owe a great debt to the God who made us. He, he formed us. He loves us. We belong to him. We're his. And, and we just treat him at best, if he's some sort of emergency life mechanic, who might come and sort things out when it all goes a bit pear-shaped or we want something. Usually he's just a footnote if we don't even admit that he exists or want him to exist. We owe a debt to God. Jesus knows our hearts. He knows our sin. He knows what we're like. He knows the thoughts that we keep very well hidden. He knows the skeletons. 
He knows the regrets. He knows our past. He, he knows us. He's come as a ransom to deal with the debt we owe. You might have seen on the news at the moment, there's a British film receiving rave reviews, multiple awards. It's called 12 Years a Slave. It's doing very well. It's the story of a man from New York who was kidnapped and captured and forced into slavery, treated brutally, a gifted man. It's not pleasant viewing. But at the end of the film, there is freedom, but there is still a ransom that has to be paid. Twelve years on, he still needs to be rescued with money. A debt needs to be dealt with. The price for our freedom, Jesus says, is himself. It's his life. One man for many. And yet some of us have got some questions. They're kind of, but... Perhaps you're here this morning, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Perhaps you've got friends or colleagues at work or on your sports team or in your family and they don't like this kind of talk. They come back at you and you don't quite know what to say. So some people think, well, these substitution ideas, isn't that just showing that the Christian faith is really a sort of a twist on the bloodthirsty, primitive, grumpy gods of old who need some sort of blood sacrifice to deal with their anger or something? Or others object and say, well... Does Jesus have to go through this? Why couldn't God just kind of get rid of it? If he's that powerful, then why can't he just chuck it away? Come and chat to me afterwards. Just a couple of thoughts on those. Um, The first one to say, so there's our buts, is that God is loving. Here's the idea. All real, life-changing love is, is sacrificial. We might even say it's substitutionary. We take on their pain. We pour ourselves out for them. We do them good. If we truly love someone, that's what happens. So think, about, think about parenting, whether you're a parent or just kind of watching in on the chaos of other parents. Kids need their parents. They need parents to pour themselves out for them, to take on their needs. So think changing nappies. Think midnight cowpole. Cooking meals they don't eat, helping with math homework, being a taxi as you ferry them from club to club to club, paying for their university fees, whatever it might be. You love children and you pour yourself into them. You sacrifice yourself for them. You allow yourself to be drained and affected by them. Well, so God gives himself for us. In a sense, it's not just an innocent third party who's come and being punished For his people, it is God himself, God the Son, taking his own right anger upon himself, paying the debt that we owe to him. God is love. But more than that, God is good. And he is more good than we can imagine. He he is so good... He can't just use kind of cosmic tipex and pretend it's not there. The stuff that we do, we say, we think, it didn't happen. We can't just, he can't just cover it up and, and pretend it was non-existent. We want justice. Let's be honest, think about the judge in the Jimmy Savile case. 
For him to just pretend it wasn't there, it didn't happen, that would make us angry. We want justice. We want wrongs to be righted. It's why we, why we love watching crime dramas. It's why we get angry at the news. The God of the Bible is beautifully loving and good. And so we have the cross. A substitution, a death for many, a, a ransom. God comes himself to deal with his own anger. And that is our foundation for the Christian life. I want to urge you, Magdalen Road and friends from further afield, to never move on from that truth. You might think it's a slightly weird thing to go on about at your sort of leadership induction thing. But it strikes me that if we really believe 10 verse 45, if we really believe it, then we will be humble. We have to be humble. You can't stand proudly in front of the cross. When you acknowledge that you need this ransom, that you have this enormous debt that you owe to God and he's come and paid it for you, then we have to be humble. So I want to say to you, please hold me to account on that. As I have the privilege of serving you, of leading, then please pray that my heart would daily rejoice and meditate on that truth. Pray that my lips would regularly preach that truth, speak of that truth to others. Pray that my life would be shaped by that truth. Pray that my heart wouldn't ever veer into thinking, I can bring anything other than my sin. We want to be able to contribute. We don't like grace. We don't like accepting help. We want to be able to sort our own problems out and say when we realise the debt we have, then our hearts shrink away. Last week we were thinking, if you were here, that we might actually prefer for God to be a bit like a vending machine. We saw a man called Naaman wanting to pay to be healed, but God just wanted him to trust and to receive. But a vending machine, God, is so much easier to cope with. We put the money in and out come the goodies. Put in the good deeds and out comes God being happy with you. Put in the kindness and God gives you what you want. He'll answer your prayers. Put in our giving or our fasting or whatever it might be and out come what we think we need. But he's not a vending machine. He's in charge. It doesn't work like that. And so verse 45 must come first. It is the flower bed in which true Christian humility can grow and flourish and blossom. Disciples don't get it. So look at what comes before verse 45. And just briefly, our second point, the foundation for Christian leadership. Here's the key thing. In the world's eyes... Greatness is seen in how many people you have under you. In Jesus' eyes, greatness is seen in how many people you have over you. You see, it's very different. James and John and the ten in indignant response to James and John are thinking about greatness as everyone else does. 
they're looking for a time when Jesus would be crowned and worshipped and adored and honoured and they would like, please, to have the top role in the cabinet. Give us what we ask. James, maybe President, John, Chief of Staff. They've got it completely wrong. Because greatness in God's eyes means service. It means humility. The way down is the way up. Perhaps for James and John it was being in control, it was having power, asserting authority, thinking like the world. So he calls them together in 42 and says, You know that those who, regard, who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. See, over them, over them, emphasis being over people, looking down on people. Maybe the way that we're able to, to direct and to influence and to order things maybe being at the centre of things, maybe getting things our way, maybe coming down on people like a tonne of bricks when they get stuff wrong. But it's all about being over people. Pray that we as a church would never slide into that. Pray that we would see greatness in service. Because in greatness in being over people is very common in all walks of life. Maybe it's in the office, the insecure, overbearing, bullying boss. You can't cope with people disagreeing. Maybe it's that committee member who's been on the committee for years and years and is practically dead but won't give up their position because they don't want to lose the influence they have. They want things to go their way. Maybe it's just in our style of leadership. Maybe at home in the family, in the workplace, maybe even at church. Overbearing, demanding, harsh. I have to say, my experience of Magdalen Road is very much a place of verse 42 rather than that. Sorry, not 42. <laughs> much more verse 43. The examples I see are more like this. Jesus said, Not so with you. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Follow me. Pour yourself out for others. Follow my pattern. It is costly. It's going to cost you time, energy, money, sweat, food, emotions. It'll mean perhaps not doing the kind of stuff that you want to do. But you see, like him, we're to be a people who don't say, what's in this for me? But we say, what's in this for them? Life is is meant to be spent for him, for them, for others. And you think people don't deserve it? Well, do it anyway. Because when he died as a ransom for you, you didn't deserve it. And do it when no one else knows about it, because often our danger is we're willing to serve, but only in the stuff that we kind of like or want to do. When we'll be noticed, so it ends up not serving them or him, it's serving ourselves, our comfort, our reputation. Be prepared to be invisible, anonymous, unthanked. Pour yourself out when people won't notice because he notices. Life is meant to be spent.
From my experience, it's easy to get this wrong. When we begin to examine motives, we have a wrong model of greatness, a wrong model of leadership, and it veers easily into becoming all about me and less about him. But someone said this. So the gospel of grace is the difference between doing ministry to make a name for ourselves or exalting Jesus' name at the price of our irrelevancy. It's not about us. It's about him. Forget me this morning. Forget me at Magdalen Rose. Remember him. So dear lovely Magdalen Road, as we set out on this journey together, as we look forward, please pray that we might be a church bursting with people who long to serve others, who want to be great in God's eyes as they pour themselves out as Jesus did, using the kind of gifts that God's given each of us for the good of other people, not for ourselves, not for our own comfort, not for our own reputation but for him and for them. Are people prepared to be forgotten, anonymous, spent for them? And when we feel like we can't, and we feel like we don't want to, because we do feel like that, and we will feel like that, let's be honest, then look again at verse 45. Rethink how you think. Reflect on his grace and mercy poured out on a people who didn't deserve it, who don't deserve it, who can never deserve it. Pray again for him to fill you and equip you so that you can fulfil the tasks he's called you to. And pray for me, please. Pray for your leaders here. Pray that we might be increasingly and only shaped and captivated and moulded by this vision of greatness, that it wouldn't be about us, genuinely, that we would be forgettable, anonymous, invisible, but it would be about him. Each day that we might be humble, following in his footsteps, shaped by the Son of Man who gave his life as a ransom for many, the foundation for our life, every day, But also then the example of true greatness, true servanthood, the foundation for our leadership. Not so with you. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many.